So we're both of the generation who grew up with the birth of the internet. Yep, we are both millennials. So how often did your parents warn you about sharing information online or like talk about digital privacy? Actually, I don't remember my parents ever having that talk with me. Is that bad? (laughs) I don't really remember the first time I had the talk with my parents either. I think I've always just been a bit leery of strangers on the internet knowing too much about me. But it turns out that's probably not the aspect of digital privacy that I need to be the most concerned about. But before we get into that, introductions? Sure. I'm Sadie Witkowski. And I'm Ian Martin. And you're listening to Carry the Two, a podcast from the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, aka MC. This is the podcast where Sadie and I talk about the real-world applications of mathematical and statistical research. We might seem like an odd couple to tackle these topics. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, and Ian is a high school choir teacher. But thankfully, you don't need a degree in mathematics or statistics to learn how to apply them to the world around you, or to use them to help you evade Ultron. (laughs) Okay, well, we're clearly not living in the Avengers slash Marvel universe, so maybe we're safe? Usually my job is driving people a little bit. People, after talking to me, says that, oh, I'm going to turn out all my LT devices at home. I'm sorry. (laughs) To clarify, IoT stands for Internet of Things, i.e. all of your Wi-Fi-enabled devices. And who is that? You just heard Heather Zhang, a professor in the Computer Science Department at the University of Chicago. Heather is one of the lead investigators in the SAND lab. That's security, algorithms, networks, and data. And she's going to be walking us through how we can reclaim control of our data and our privacy. Because when it comes to the internet, I think we're all aware how easy it is to find all sorts of information that maybe we don't want public. If somebody gets targeted, it's it's very easy to actually get this information. Okay, we haven't even started this episode, and I'm already starting to feel a little paranoid. I know, right? In the digital age, I feel like everything we do is tracked. We're always trying to protect ourselves from data harvesting, especially of the sort that can reveal personally identifiable information. Thankfully, we have researchers like Heather to help. I think that one of the the misreceptions is possibly an individual user cannot do much about it, and we have to wait um, for the big shots to change the landscape. Our work is always trying to say you can. Um, There are ways um, to help build up the defense, but you need to start be aware of it and you can apply some of these defenses and it is feasible. And we're working on that for various different kinds of attack. But first thing we have to be able to raise, uh, get people to aware of potential attack. So is Heather talking about things like phishing scams and how to avoid them? Not quite, though we are talking about protecting digital privacy. More specifically, Heather's research group focuses on both potential and actual threats to our data and ways that we as individuals can protect ourselves. Doesn't the EU kind of already do this for its citizens? Wouldn't it make more sense for this to come from regulation? Neither Heather nor I disagree with that. But with the breakneck pace that technology moves, it's been pretty hard to properly regulate. And in the meantime, our data is getting snapped up by all sorts of potentially malicious actors. So is Heather trying to prevent that? Yep. She wants to provide immediate, concrete tools that can help folks now, while we urge regulators to take on these issues at a more global scale. And while no individual solution will be perfect, it's still better than nothing. A defense is always about raising the cost of the attack. Oh, I like that. So 
If she's not looking at protecting from phishing scams, what is some of the work she's doing? So the research project that first caught my attention was something that she presented here at IMSI for a workshop called Private AI, Machine Learning on Encrypted Data. And it's named after a rather famous person. Fox is essentially how users um, can help prevent or reduce um, the third party or unauthorized third party who use their uploaded image in the online platform to uh, run facial recognition against them in reality, in physical or, or in even the online without their consent. Fox? Are we talking about the Wes Anderson animated whimsy that is the incredible Mr. Fox? <laughs> no, not quite. More like Remember, Remember the 5th of November. The gunpowder treason and plot. Okay, so we're referring to Guy Fox here? Right, who was a historical figure, a Catholic who tried to blow up the British Parliament building, though nowadays we mostly recognize the name from the V for Vendetta masks. And that's more of the reference Heather is going for here. The masks. Oh, because she mentioned online images. Exactly. The Fox Project is about protecting your image literally online from being harvested and used for facial recognition software. So the general thing is that um, there are multiple companies uh, like clearworld.ai. What they do is they build third-party facial recognition uh, software for, you know, for profits. <laughs> so, um, but how do they get your uh, facial templates? Because that's exactly like your like your fingerprint, like your voice print. They have to get your original data. So, in general, what these companies do is they go online and they either go to your social profile or anywhere you post the or somebody else posts your image, and usually that's labeled with your let's say this is Heather John or this is Sandy. So they basically label you and then get a bunch of these data, and that becomes the training data they use to identify you or do the template to identify you. Oh my god, what? They're, they're just like doing this to random people? I, I truly, this is, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is clearly an example of using what you post for data mining, in this case for image recognition. And I guess we could say that a person could just choose to never post images of themselves or their loved ones online. But come on, really? How many people do you know who don't have an Instagram or Facebook account? This is very easy because before they had to take your photo. You had to go to DMV to take a photo. Now it's very easy. Just build a script and they basically um, just scope uh, many things uh, out of the Internet. So that's the one. You know, so when we post our live photo, we have to be really cautious, right? But it's very difficult to either post and don't worry about it. Or you just say, oh, I'm not going to post anything at all. I don't post anything about my kids or my family. But not everybody would want to do that. That basically kick, kill the social interaction. So what we're trying to do is what users can do in this regard. You can wait for the law to regulate these companies, industries, uh, or is there anything that user can do? So what we're trying to do is using kind of AI to or ML to defend against a, a ML. So how does this Fox thing help protect my beauteous photos from being turned against me? You know the podcast format by now. <laughs> Obviously with math. Yeah. But specifically, Heather uses machine learning. So um, there's a, in adversary uh, machine learning, there's a certain behavior we call kind of a perturbation or um, you add some kind of a perturbation onto your image 
And that perturbation, it's very visually small or not even affecting the visual view, and yet it creating the much changes in the feature space that alternate how the machine look at the features extract related to identity. So we try, we build Fox. Fox essentially a kind of, we call the poison or the clo cloaking methods. The cloaking is essentially when you upload your image to the internet, you actually add some kind of a imperceptible or some minor cloaking or perturbation in the pixel level. And that pixel level uh, perturbation basically moved your identity feature vector in the feature space. So when these companies use these um, to build their facial recognition, they will generate a template about your identity, which is drastically different from what you have in reality. So now um, I basically go online or I walk on the street, they take a photo of me, which without have these perturbations, right? Because I'm not wearing them. And then when this is happening, they will recognize me as a different person. So Fox is adversarial machine learning? Right, which Heather sometimes abbreviates as ML. And these perturbations that she's making to the images are like tiny pixel adjustments. She's not like adding beauty marks or straightening noses or something, right? No, that's what Snapchat filters are for. <laughs> <laughs> or like a dog snout. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, by using Fox, you're adding this layer on top of the image that makes these tiny changes to the face that our human eyes won't recognize, but will totally throw a computer off. When people have a perfect <laughs> face or facial, it's much harder to add voice. So obviously this wouldn't work on Beyonce. Or Jensen Ackles. No one knows who that is. <laughs> mm. <laughs> But there are ways to hide these slight alterations in most images. Ideally, if you have, as you're aging, you know, if you have any wrinkles or anything on your face, it's a natural one, like age spot or whatever. It's actually perfect to actually hide all these perturbations uh, into one. <laughs> um, I even have folks suggest to me, can you just make that as a makeup? Um, yes, you can beautify yourself and adding the perturbation along that line. It just needs a little bit more compute. I mean, a lot more of computation optimization per se. So um, that's all doable as long as this is actually match your expectation and you can choose to optimize that. Oh, this seems like such an obvious and perfect tool that I never realized I needed. I can both beautify myself, not that I need it, and protect my identity online. Yes, please. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to make any sweeping statements. Fox isn't perfect, and Heather can't exactly test it against every potential facial recognition software, like ever, because they're constantly evolving. It's a bit of an arms race that way. We tested across multiple systems, including the open source one, also the, um, the online version, like um, from multiple platform. It seems to work very well. Um, however, we cannot exactly test, exactly test every specific platform. Um, I think that's uh, the key thing. And it's ha much harder to deal with because there are so many instances of these testings. So we're testing on multiple commercial platform. Um, it seems to work very well. Um, but it's the other caveats of this is, is you cannot really guarantee. It's not like you have a set to guarantee about these things. And all the model evolve as well. I mean, better than nothing. So I've clearly convinced you of the utility of Fox. But I think we should talk a bit about how it actually works. Oh, you mean the point of this podcast? Like the math behind it? <laughs> okay, smart guy. Why don't you explain what a feature vector is? Um... 
I actually think that uh, it would be more appropriate if we look to our guests to answer those questions. Um, so let's let's see what Heather says. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. What we're trying to do is basically uh, move your identity vector, feature vector in the feature space to a different place that will not correspond to your true identity. So, um, but how far to move it really depends on where we can hide these visual perturbation without affecting the visual percep- uh, of, your, of your whole face. And there can be different level of kind of different protection and different perturbation around that as well. Right, vector space. Nope, I'm still lost. <laughs> I know, this is a little non-intuitive at first, unless you have a background in like machine learning. I think the general uh, um, aspect of uh, machine learning, how data is getting translated from the input space to the feature space, and how that this is a nonlinear effect. And then that's why you can actually generate a lot of these sort of move in one direction, but with a little perturbation at the input. So a lot of like ML basic stats is very useful. The mass is definitely, definitely important. Um, in all the research we actually done right now. So feature space isn't a one-to-one of my facial features? No, it's not. It's not just your nose is one feature and your eyes are another. Feature space in machine learning refers to the collection of variables that you're interested in. Feature space is basically a high-dimensional space that translates your complex visual of your face, let's for say, into a... Um, series of data points where the machine can understand the pattern and then use this pattern to map back to the input data. So it's kind of a uh, reduced representation about your uh, specific image or specific piece of input data in the mathematical form, which capture the essence of the input data. So my nose isn't a feature, but maybe something like the distance between my eyebrows? Yeah, it's like these much more small pieces that make up the face as a whole. And even more importantly, the features are the points we use to tell the difference between individuals' faces. Mathematical features is the data patterns that separating, maximum separating the the two of us. Um, Yeah, although we have the same amount of eyes and nose and everything, but there are different kinds of features along there. But you have to make it the right combination in order to change the feature space. So the mapping is very nonlinear. That's why you have to do the optimization search, which can be done uh, using mathematical formula in this case and leveraging the computer resource you have. It's all doable. You had me and, and then you lost me. So once we have this list of features for photos that build the feature space, we have to figure out what tweaks we want to make to that space, right? These are the changes or tweaks that make my face unrecognizable to a computer program? Right. But then we still want our human eyes, i.e. our friends on Instagram, to still recognize our face as our own. So we have to use an optimization search to figure out what big changes we can make in feature space that will then minimally impact our images when it comes to our eyes. Because there's a lot of nonlinear um, relationship between the input and output that gives you this type of big, small manipulation of the input, which generates a significant shift into the output side effect. 
So basically, because machine learning for visual scenes is based on this feature space, looking at pixel changes rather than at the holistic way that we view images, Fox can take advantage of this non-linearity, the non-one-to-one comparison between feature space and what we see, to make these changes that we can't detect. That's so cool. So the tens of dozens of followers <laughs> of my private account will still recognize me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and I should mention that you can run instances of Fox both across networks of multiple people's images, which is actually the stronger way to cloak images, or on your own individual machine. Where can I get my Guy Fox mask? We'll link to Heather's webpage so you can download your own instance of it. So what we are trying to do is say not to completely stopping everybody, I mean, third party from, you know, recognize us, but just make it much harder for them. But also give user immediate react, I mean, uh, action item they can do just to put this on them, on their photos when they upload, and then just make it harder for those um, third party to recognize us in reality. I think that's, it's a delay. It's a years of a delay that matters as well. It's not perfect, but Fox helps make you a harder target to collect data on. Wait, but at the beginning of this episode, you said this was her first project? You're right. We actually have two other applications of machine learning to data privacy that we haven't even talked about yet. Fox is essentially a defense against a, a current kind of a privacy threats that everybody's facing. And the other two are basically exposing the potential attacks um, that could be launched against us in terms of privacy. And these are basically not intuitive. But we'll get to those after a short break. If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on our show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show that you should check out. It's called Capital Isn't. Capital Isn't uses the latest economic thinking to zero in on the ways capitalism is, and more often isn't, working today. From the debate over how to distribute a vaccine to the morality of a wealth tax, Capital Isn't clearly explains how capitalism can go wrong and what we can do about it. Listen to Capital Isn't, part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network. So now that we've dealt with an example of real-world data privacy and protection, Heather mentioned potential attacks? Right. These next two projects her group worked on are more focused on preventing ways that we could potentially lose privacy. And, of course, ways that we as individuals can actually prevent that. So what's up first? Well, imagine if someone could track your movements within your own home, whether that be an apartment or a house, just by dropping a passive receiver, a, a Wi-Fi sniffer, within range of your Wi-Fi network. Wait, what? Also, they don't even need my Wi-Fi password? Which obviously isn't an obscure Harry Potter reference. <laughs> no, you would literally have no way of knowing unless you discovered the bug. Because it's totally passive and it doesn't affect your network or your devices at all. So we're just trying to look at, you know, if because all these Wi-Fi devices transmit some signals and they do transmit signals over time. Can an external observer just observe the fluctuation of these signals and use that to infer your activity or your presence in the home? I would love it if you said this was all the paranoid delusions of my mind and that it's totally not possible. Yeah, wouldn't we all? Sadly, if you have a malevolent actor who wanted to track you this way, 
they pretty easily could. It's completely <laughs> passive. It doesn't need to ascend data. So that's why if anything's passive, you can drop a wireless lamp, which does not send data. You can just let it observe, right? Anything on the street, anything can put near your uh, garden or a sniffer, which lasts for a few days. And then they basically record your daily patterns over time. I think that's the, that's the, and it's very difficult because like, it doesn't transmit any data. <laughs> so that's one. It just listen. It does not control the signal. It just listen and look, use my spec analysis. We look at, you know, we, we self, I mean, calibrate and did, remove the noise effect, everything, and then just identify which room you're at um, a particular time. Wait, but how is this bad actor able to tell where I am in my apartment using Wi-Fi? Well, the key is having multiple devices on your Wi-Fi network across the different rooms. The sniffer collects that information and... And if they can analyze that data and then look at the perturbation within the, that data over time, and they can know when you're at a particular room. Let's say in the morning you got up, you go to the bathroom or you go to the uh, you know, dining room, you go to the kitchen. They know exactly what, which room you, you go a particular instance. So that's basically they know when you enter your home, which room you're going to. And that's kind of a scary effect. And the more Wi-Fi devices you put in into the home, the, the more precise uh, information they will obtain. I'm still not getting exactly how this works. Think of it like echolocation, that thing that bats do to navigate the world. Every device is connected to your network and is constantly sending out a signal, which is then deflected or weakened when it runs into stuff. Like how you might need a second device in your home office if the router didn't reach there? Exactly. So walls and furniture affect the signal, and so does our physical body. So if you record the signals over time, you can spot the fluctuations that represent you moving through your space. That is so creepy. And it just needs to monitor the signals changing over time. It doesn't need to know the internal structure. But wow. if you have a floor plan, it helps uh, tremendously. Oh, well. But the floor plan, you can actually get it from a lot of real estate um, website anyway. <laughs> Congrats, you have thoroughly freaked me out. I will be unplugging everything as soon as I get home. <laughs> yeah. Sally, that's not a great option for folks, though, right? Like, we need Wi-Fi to log into work if you're working from home or play music or turn on smart lights or whatever else people use the Internet of Things for. But I'm assuming based on Heather's orientation towards protecting our data that she has a solution? Indeed. Basically, her group has proposed an AP-based obfuscation. Oh, yes, the Advanced Placement-Based Obfuscation Test. I hear it's a, it's a really tough one. <laughs> AP in this case means access point for your Wi-Fi. Basically, it's the same idea as Fox. You can add noise or cloak over the original signal, and that hides these patterns. And we're trying to say your AP, your access point, can actually help you by transmitting some kind of obstruction or obfuscating signals. So it's mostly adding perturbation, just make it harder for the attacker to extract information easily. They either need to have a multiple antenna, so you basically just make it much harder for them to deploy without you knowing it's there, or they just need much more sophisticated devices. It's much harder for them. So it's all about raising their cost. So you can add a noise mask over the signal and that makes it harder to detect the true signal? Bingo. Well, thank you for taking me on that journey of freaking me out to feeling like I can at least do something about it. 
Are you ready for me to do it one more time? If you must. <laughs> Keyboard project is uh, more recent. It's kind of a little bit more scary. <laughs> uh, it's because um, looking at the personal privacy, our voice, our 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 face, our own private, but also your data you type on the machine is also very private. But now if you have people work in public all the time, work in the, you know, air, on the train, on the airport, everything is basically, you mix these public space with work together, right? But now if you are typing your sensitive information on the keyboard, right? It's like I'm doing this, right? And I'm typing on a keyboard. And you, by just recording this video of me typing here, and you don't even need to know my keyboard, and I can, after you type about 10 minutes or 500 words, I know exactly what you typed. Well, I know 90% of what you typed. Whoa, 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 back up. Right. So this project is perhaps a more immediate fear or concern than the Wi-Fi one. Heather's research group is trying to figure out how to protect people's private writing that they're doing in public spaces. This feels very James Bond. Oh, yeah. It feels classic spycraft. In this study, Heather showed that if you're typing away on an iPad or a keyboard and someone can see your fingers, they can record five to 10 minutes of your finger movements and then run an algorithm for about 40 minutes and recover what you typed with really good accuracy. So if you're a government employee or someone high up in a corporation, this kind of espionage bypasses any protections you have from an encrypted Wi-Fi network or a screen protector that might be keeping people from reading over your shoulder. It can be any keyboard. I don't need to need your keyboard layout. I don't need to know, have your training data about which one key you type. I don't need to know the content you type. I only need to know probably you're typing English. That's all we need to know. Nothing else about it's a first encounter attack. I don't need any information about you. I just need to have an RGB camera in front of you and that you're typing. How are they able to do this? I mean, I tend to be a pretty sloppy typist. So how could they even tell what I'm tapping out? Well, it gets back to Heather's work in machine learning. We use a language model the whatever, the language model have some kind of frequency and things about that. It's a little bit complex. But also I use a language model to help you build the first layer of the label. And then they help you get an initial label to at least give you some sense about these labels. But many of them are wrong. Yeah. And we filter them and identify and retrain the, and then train the, the DNA model to actually you know, self-correct some of these errors. It actually worked pretty well. So kind of like the frequency predictions we talked about in Allison's episode on GPT-3? Right. These are prediction models which combine the mathematics of the program to produce a statistical predictions about what, in the case of GPT-3, makes the most sense linguistically. And then in the case here, statistical predictions are taking the patterns you typed and figuring out what words you were writing. And if you missed Allison's episode, you can find it on the link in the show notes. And just like GPT-3 used layers in the neural net to build complexity, in this keyboard study, Heather used a similar idea. So it's called a hidden Markov model. So it has a little bit more beyond the frequency. It also uses a transition kind of probability to maximize the one. So you basically build a initial clustering based on how your fingers move, where you touches. But all these are basic estimates from my low level, low dimensional analysis. And you use this to give a rough guess 
And this rough guess is basically used, and we actually apply the filter. So the filter is a little bit more complex because we're trying to look at consistency, look at many things across multiple layer, and just to eliminate potential noise, or at least eliminate the, 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 the labels that could be wrong or uncertainty. So you use less number of labels with reasonable accuracy, and then you apply additional level of noisy training, and then that helps us build a much better DNN model to recover um, the contents. CD, I thought we were investing in a jargon alarm or buzzer or something. <laughs> I'll put it in our budget for the next season, but what's tripping you up? Markov model, clustering, filtering. I mean, what's happening here that allows these hidden Markov model thing to figure out what I'm typing? Well, when you boil it all down, so it's all about, you know, finding patterns. But going back to the jargon, a hidden Markov model is used to predict a sequence or a series of unknown, aka hidden, variables. It's based on observable variables. So in this case, we're trying to predict the hidden button presses slash words that were typed based on the observable movements of a person's fingers. The cool thing about it is that you don't actually need any prior knowledge. You don't need to pre-train the model because it's only learning based on the finger movements that you give it. So we had to deal with noise. We had to deal with that you don't have training data. You don't, and the user behavior varies, right? So I type and you type very differently. And also our pattern may not be fully consistent all the time. Right. So, um, so that's another level of noise we have to deal with. So the model has to deal with noise in the system, which is why it makes a clustered estimations of where the fingers are pressing as a first pass. And then you start adding in some more other filtering to refine those guesses. So the clustered estimation might be that my finger actually pressed D, but the model will say it could be maybe an S or an E that I hit. But it's really unlikely that that finger tapped like K. Exactly. At least that's the case on like a QWERTY keyboard. So this hidden Markov model algorithm just needs five minutes of my typing and then 40 minutes to chug along and you'll know what I typed? I mean, you need at least 500 words-ish typed, so that amount of observed time varies between the speeds of typists. But yeah, that's the idea in a nutshell. Of course, this algorithm would be really bad at recovering code, for example, if you were writing in Python or R because code has different frequencies of letter or word use? Yeah, that's kind of true, but actually it's much more because it's hard to write in code fluently like we do for human languages. It takes people on average much longer to type a thousand characters in a computer script than it does to just write an email. That is not what I was expecting. <laughs> so have I thoroughly convinced you that a spy with an iPhone camera could record you for under 10 minutes and recover all the terrible fan fiction you were writing at your local coffee shop? Uh, it sounds like that's something you're worried about. <laughs> <laughs> but point taken. Uh, I do see the dangers posed here. Now, let's hear the solution. I think the, the immediate thing is if you go to an airport, you go to a public space, people do this all the time right? Yeah. You see more people typing on iPads on, on many of these travel keyboard all the time without any blockage. Blockage? So the key weakness here is using something like an iPad where the potential spy can clearly record your finger movements. I think if you use a, a laptop, maybe you're safe because you're, the screen actually provides pretty good privacy. But if you're not using a type, you're so good at typing on iPads. 
which does not have a blockage. Um, that's what we're saying that you need to be aware of this because somebody can just pretend to watch a video because what we're showing is somebody just pretend to watch a video and they record you. So moral of the story for this one is to use a laptop in public instead of an iPad. Or just bring one of those manila folder things that they used to make us put up between our tests when we took them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for a mathy podcast, this is quite a low-tech solution, but I like it. So did I live up to my promise? Were you made paranoid and then reassured that there are things you can actually do to protect your digital privacy? Yes, it has been quite the roller coaster. I just love how mathematics can be used as a solution, as we saw in Fox. Or mathematics are used to reveal potential dangers to our privacy in the adversarial manner, as Heather describes it. We're not reinventing these maths. We're applying or understanding the implication of doing so, whether it's from the machine sides or, or from the attack sides or it's from the defense sides. They're all involve, you know, what you can do to change the pattern and what you can do to, and, and subject to certain constraint, whether it's perturbation size, whether it's where you use it, how you use it, whether it's a physical barrier versus a, a, a digital edit of your photo, all these are basically what you can do to change the pattern of the um, of um, what can be used for data analysis and how do you do that. Math can be used for good or for evil. But regardless, we have to be aware of these potential risks and dangers before we can know how to counteract them. I think the user, that individual user has agency to protect themselves and has the capability to protect themselves, or at least raise the attack cost is the key thing we're trying to say here. So while we should really have governmental powers regulating a lot of this and helping protect folks. In the meantime, we can use math to proactively protect ourselves. And don't forget to check out our show notes in the podcast description for more on the adversarial machine learning research and further resources on the mathematics and statistics behind data privacy. And if you like the show, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. By rating and reviewing the show, you really help us spread the word about Carry the Two so that other listeners can discover us. And for more math research being shared at MC, be sure to check us out online at our homepage, mc.institute. We're also on Twitter at MC underscore Institute, as well as Instagram at MC dot Institute. That's MC spelled I-M-S-I. And do you have a burning math question? Maybe you have an idea for a story on how mathematics and statistics connect with the world around us. Send us an email with your idea. You can send your feedback, ideas, and more to sadiewit at MC dot Institute. That's S-A-D-I-E-W-I-T at MC dot Institute. We'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Tyler Dammy, for his production on the show. And music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Lastly, Carry the Two is made possible by the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, located on the gorgeous campus of the University of Chicago. We're supported by the National Science Foundation and the University of Chicago. Fox, like F O. X. That you got mail. Sure. No, that no, the scene with the kid. Mail. You've never seen.
waiting until we were recording because I have fake news. Which is? I'm going to see Beyonce. <laughs> You're like, I actually do need this on tape. <laughs> Beyonce. That's Beyonce. <laughs> She's so excited that I'm going to see her, and I'm like, don't worry, girl, I'll be right up next to the stage. First of all, I did have the thought of like, can I bike with one wheel, <laughs> one pedal? Can I make this work? Somehow there's a way here. <laughs> could I bike with just the back wheel?